everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trubiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format for my show, Mob Times, which comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. I pick a new gangster every week and go through their entire life's history, making sure to focus on the scandal, crime, and even little-known facts about the men and women whose names you may have spent your entire life hearing, but I promise you, you've never heard the details quite like this. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you know how much I love and appreciate every single one of you, and thanks so much for coming back. So, my life update. And again, remember, I have chapters in the description of every single video that I put out. If you want to skip to just get to the episode and listen to Facts About the Gangster, go ahead and click the chapter of his early days and you'll skip all my blabbering so you are not required to listen. First of all, I want to talk about a project that I'm going to be working on soon. I am leaving early in the morning tomorrow, and I'm heading to Ohio, of all places. A state that I've never visited, and I'm super psyched to go there and see all the places, do all the kind of touristy things. I'm going to be working on a bunch of videos, so hopefully you guys will have some dope content coming in the next few weeks. I'm not really going to talk about it further than that because I have a lot of really cool people that I'm going to be working with and I don't really want to spoil anything, but I'm hoping you guys will really like what's coming out. I apologize for missing last week's upload, but honestly, today's gangster is really popular and I wanted to do like all the research that I possibly could into him and get as much information about him as I could before making the video. So it was a lot of research. I didn't want to just half-ass it, so it took a while to do the research. If I'm being 100% honest with you, the only reason I'm recording this video right now is because I don't want to go two weeks without uploading a video. I really would rather not because I have not wanted to get out of bed today. I've not wanted to record a video where I'm being all upbeat and happy when that's pretty far from where I'm actually at right now. I know a lot of you have been following my journey with IVF and I got my first actual embryo transfer a few weeks ago. That was a huge milestone, and I was so excited and 100% sure that it worked. There was no reason that it wouldn't. After all the tens of thousands of dollars I've sunk in, the pain of the endless injections I've gotten, the constant stress and anxiety and the devastation from trying thing after thing after thing and then not working, IVF was supposed to be the thing that was gonna work. I know it's stupid and it goes against everything that the doctors tell you to do, but when I got inseminated, I immediately started doing pregnancy tests because I was so positive that it was going to work and I was so excited. So I started taking pregnancy tests every single day from day one. And I know, I know for the first few days, like there's no way in hell it's going to turn up positive. Even if it works, it's not going to show up positive. It's going to say negative. But I was so sure that that positive was coming. I even went out and spent like $1,000 on scrapbook supplies because I decided that I didn't want like a pre-made baby book. I wanted to make my own baby book and kind of document the journey of getting to there. You know, like I wanted like a pregnancy journal and put all the IVF stuff, all the IUIs and everything. So I got all the supplies. I started the book. I was ready for it. Okay. I was ready. The insemination itself 
It's kind of like a surgery. I had no idea. Thankfully, I wasn't, like, under for it like I was for the harvesting. But this shit is serious. Like, I had to put on one of those protective hair pieces. You gotta be, like, all sterile. It's no joke. In the meantime, while you're going out of your mind for two weeks waiting for the results, you're doing progesterone shots every single day. You're supposed to do them for the two weeks that you're waiting for a positive or negative result, and then you're supposed to continue them for 10 weeks after getting a positive pregnancy test. That shit, I'm not sure. It is no joke. It's an intramuscular shot. So it's like this long. Like, it's super long. And it has to go into your lower back. And let me tell you, out of all of the shots that I have had to self-administer on a regular basis, this one sucked the most. Now, I'm a bitch, okay? I don't like paint. Can I handle it? Yes. Do I have tattoos that I have had to sit through with an immense amount of pain? Yes. Have I been in more physical fights than I can count and broken every bone in my hand and broken my nose on several occasions? Yes. Can I handle getting a shot? Nope. I am a bitch. (laughs) I mean, I was in the army. I participated in the round robin where I got like 85 vaccines and I got my blood drawn so often that the phlebotomists literally knew me by name. So blood draws don't really bother me, but injections are the worst. After about a week of doing the injections, I was like, nope, I can't do this for 10 weeks. You guys are out of your freaking mind. This is absolute insanity. No, I can't do it. I'm like limping around. I can't walk correctly. Like I'm being a whole bitch about this. And I'm just like, no, it's not for me. I have a back injury. Like I cannot do this. Thank God there's other options, and I went with the other options because that shit was real life unbearable, because getting that kind of shot on a regular basis, like, no fun. Promise. Anyways, yesterday was the big day. I went to the doctor, and I got a blood test, and I found out that it did not work. That is why I really don't want to be sitting here. I don't want to be making this video. I really didn't even want to get out of bed today. I really didn't even want to wake up this morning. I know that there have been so many people that have gone through this process and they've gone through exactly the same thing. I know I'm not alone. I know there's a million people who have been through a thousand times worse. And this shouldn't be that big of a deal to me. Hell, I have been through the worst of the worst. This should be no skin off my teeth. Like, just move on. But when I tell you that this is killing me, like, this is absolutely freaking killing me. It took all the wind out of me when they told me that it didn't work. It seriously feels like it's just never gonna happen for me. I'm gonna be 80 years old and talking to the other old ladies in the nursing home, telling them, like, no, I don't have kids, no children, it just never worked for me. How I tried and tried and tried, and I could just never make it happen. And I have done everything. I've tried every herbal way, I've done multiple IUI rounds, I've gotten surgeries, I've tracked my cycle for years, I have done everything. Short of getting a surrogate, which costs around $150,000 that I just do not have, I've literally done everything. I even got declined for, like, fostering and adopting, which I was, like, fully willing, ready, and able to do. But because of everything that went down in the army, I am not able to do that. It just feels so, like, soul-crushing. Like, being a parent is just something that I'm never going to be able to do. It feels like I should just 
move on with my life and accept that it's not going to happen. Like, I'm a dog mom. I should just accept that that's all I'm ever going to be. It's just devastating. This whole situation, this whole process is devastating, and I would not wish this on my worst enemy. I'm sorry for sitting here and, like, unloading on this video. As I've said in a few videos before, very few people that I know in real life watch these videos. Okay, so moving on from that melodrama that probably none of you want to hear about, Let's go ahead and get to this week's gangster, shall we? Today's gangster is really unique in a few ways. First of all, it's someone based down under in Australia, which I've never covered anybody from Australia. Second off, this man is still alive and even has a history of suing people who have covered his story. So let's hope he never sees this video. Dominic Gatto, known as Mick Gatto, was born on August 6th, 1955 at Melbourne's Royal Women's Hospital in Carlton, a suburb of Melbourne, Australia. Gatto was one of four children, and he grew up in a traditionally Italian family household. He had an older sister, Rose, and a younger brother, John, and a younger sister, Kathy. His parents, Antonio and Francesca Gatto, were from the Calabria region of Italy, and they had immigrated to Australia after World War II. Antonio and Francesca owned a grocery store in Carlton, and Gatto grew up working at this grocery store, and he and his siblings always were there. As a child, Gatto spent most his time working in his parents' store, and this store is a hub for the local Italian community. He and his siblings helped with the daily operations of the store. They would stock shelves, they would ring up sales, they would deliver groceries to customers. So just all the things that you would expect to see a kid doing at a family store. This early exposure to business and commerce would prove to be invaluable to Gatto in his later life. His father also had a hand in crime as well. He ran an illegal gambling operation in Tasmania, he spent some time in jail, and he had a pretty serious gambling issue. Mick seems to have followed in his father's footsteps and had a pretty serious gambling issue as well. He started gambling when he was six years old, and he started gambling at those gambling machines at the local stores, and he would even cheat at these games. His father was pretty physically abusive to him when he was a kid. And if you ever wanted proof that beating your child does not work, take a look at this story. He grew up with a father who would beat him with a belt, with his hands, like anything he could get his hands on. Yet, Mick was known around town as the devil of South Melbourne. He would regularly steal from businesses, from people, he would take payphones, he would go into unoccupied homes, and he's doing all this shit at like nine years old. He was beaten by police officers, school principals, his father, he's being disciplined by everybody and anybody. And this boy is still running around causing trouble everywhere he goes. So no, definitely not efficient to just beat kids. It doesn't work. As a child, Mick jumped from school to school 
consistently being expelled from schools before he dropped out to work full-time at the age of 13 years old. But even without traditional schooling, from a young age, he learned the value of hard work and being involved in business. His parents instilled in him the importance of honesty and integrity, and Gato carried those values with him through the rest of his life. He was also really active in sports, and he developed a huge love for boxing after being attacked on the street one day. He didn't have a way to defend himself, and some adults around town ended up defending him in this situation, but he figured that he needed to learn to defend himself, so he went to a boxing gym. He was a natural athlete with a talent for boxing, so he quickly became known for his speed, his power, and his agility in the ring. He became really skilled in the sport really quickly, and soon he was competing in amateur bouts around all of Melbourne. In the late 1970s, Gato turned professional and began fighting in local boxing events. He quickly gained a reputation as a really tough and tenacious fighter who was willing to take anybody on. He was known for his aggressive style of fighting. He had really quick reflexes, and he had very powerful punches. He was a really skilled amateur boxer, and he won several championships and a lot of tournaments. Gato's success in the boxing ring led to him becoming a promoter and a manager in the sport, so he was working for other people as well. In the 1980s, Gato began managing professional boxers. He was known for his shrewd negotiating skills and his ability to get the best deals for any fighters that he represented. He also had a keen eye for talent, and he was able to identify up-and-coming boxers who had the potential to become stars. He also had a pretty big reputation for being a loyal and honest manager who always had his fighters' best interests at heart. As he got older, he began promoting boxing events and managing individual fighters. And over the years, Gato promoted and managed some of the biggest names in Australian boxing, including Jeff Fennec, Lester Ellis, and Barry Michael. He was responsible for organizing many high-profile boxing events in Melbourne, which drew huge crowds and generated a lot of revenue. Despite his success as a promoter and a manager, Gato never lost his love for boxing. He continued to train and fight throughout his entire career, and he would compete in professional bouts against other boxers even after he kind of got out of the sport and turned more to management. He won a lot of these fights, and that would further cement his reputation as a skilled and formidable boxer. Gato's involvement in the boxing world extended beyond the ring and beyond the promoter's office. He was also involved in various boxing-related charities and initiatives, including programs that aimed to get young people involved in the sport. His most successful fighter was Jeff Fennec, a three-time world champion who Gato managed for many years. While he never achieved the same level of success as a boxer as he did as a manager, he remained a very respected figure in the Australian boxing community. But even at the same time that he was involved in boxing, he was also involved in organized crime, and he began that even in his teenage years. He was raised in the Carlton area of Melbourne, which was really well known for its large Italian community and its connections to the Italian mafia. Gatto was surrounded by known criminal figures from a young age, and he was drawn to the allure of the entire criminal underworld. When he was a young man, he would hang around nightclubs a lot. 
At one of his favorite nightclubs, a club that was named Peanuts, he met his wife, Cheryl, when he was 20 years old. Even though his mom didn't approve at first, Cheryl wasn't an Italian, she got on board and the couple married in 1978 when Gatto was 22 years old and Cheryl was 24. They are literally still together to this day. I love that. Like, it's it's really cute that they met when they were so young and a lot of couples break up in this kind of life and they made it through and they're still standing strong today. Their wedding took place near Cheryl's hometown and there were only about 200 people at the wedding, which was really small by Italian standards, but was really big for the town that they were in. After a quick honeymoon, the newlywed couple moved back to Melbourne into a house that they shared with Gatto's brother, John, and his wife, Debbie. After less than a year of being married, Gatto and Cheryl welcomed their first son, Michael. Two days after he was born, Michael sadly passed away of cot death. When this happened, a man named Charlie Wooden, a very well-known illegal gambler in Australia, gave Gatto $3,000 in order to bury his son. Gatto talks about this man with a lot of respect and says that it helped him a lot, the monetary and the emotional support. On June 24th, 1980, the couple welcomed their second son, Damien. After the trauma of losing their first son, they are super on top of this kid. Like, they're watching him breathe. They are on top of him. And they're also on top of all the kids that they have after that. And all of these kids had issues. Damien had his first seizure when he was only two years old. In 1984, they had Justin, and then they had their only daughter, Sarah, sometime between 1983 and 1993. I dare you to find this girl's age on the internet. It is wild how this girl's age does not exist. I have no friggin' idea. A lot of sources claim that she's probably somewhere between 30 and 40 years old, which would put her date of birth somewhere in that range. I have no idea. I don't know how old she is. I don't know. Gatto was sentenced to prison multiple times throughout his life. He was arrested and convicted in 1982 and did eight months in prison for burglary. While he was in prison, he met a lot of other underworld criminal figures and he began to develop a lot of really strong relationships and connections with a lot of people that operated in the criminal underworld. And that's not to say that he was like squeaky clean when he went in. The fact that he had an underworld illegal gambler out there giving him money when his son died means that he already has some criminal connections going into prison. After he got out of jail, Gatto became a lot more deeply involved in organized crime. He began working with known criminal figures in Melbourne, which included the Calabrian Endrageta and the Calabrian groups known as the Honored Society. I know that's not how you pronounce it. It's so hard to pronounce, though, like Endrageta. But, like, I sound like an idiot trying to just, like, drop that in a sentence. So listen, Endrageta is how you're going to get it. Okay? Okay. Gato got in the habit of using cars as weapons, or else he was just a really bad driver. In 1974, he ran over a painter with a car and killed him. The incident was written off as an accident, and no charges were ever filed over this incident. I don't see anything about there being any kind of beef with this dude, but who knows. In 1988, he was charged with attempted murder after he hit Hassan Domez with a car, which led to him squishing this dude in between two cars, so he broke both of his legs. He claims that he lost control of the car, but 
This whole situation was following a huge fight that the two had outside of Gato's club. The two ended up in a car chase, and who knows why this guy was outside of the car while Gato was in the car. So they get into this car chase. This dude gets out of the car. Maybe he, like, got out of the car to yell at Gato, and Gato just ran him over. I don't know what happened, but somehow, after a car chase, he got out of the car and somehow ended up in a situation where Gato was able to hit him and pin him in between two cars. Gato later claimed that Domez had gone to him while, like, hobbling around on crutches with two broken legs and blackmailed him. He said that he would agree to not testify and not give any evidence against him, if he just threw him a quick $300,000. Gato claims that he refused. Not too long after this incident, Domez mysteriously died of an overdose in jail. Guess he didn't have a chance to give any evidence against Gato. I totally believe that that was an accident. I don't think that Gato had anything to do with this guy just randomly dying of an overdose while in prison, because that's like totally a normal thing to happen. Totally. Gato was suspected of involvement with a lot of various illegal activities. He was suspected of being involved in drug trafficking, money laundering, extortion, illegal gambling, you know, the works. He's also known for his involvement in the Melbourne gangland wars of the 1990s and the early 2000s, which saw a large number of high-profile criminal figures gunned down in public places. Which is so wild because I've never thought of Australia being a place where mafia clashes would happen. I never heard of the mafia in Australia. For most of the 80s and 90s, Gato was involved in illegal gambling and he was very involved in the construction industry and he's still boxing at this point. So he's either boxing or promoting boxing and he's all wrapped up in that. After a while, Gato was given a 10-year gambling ban, and that later turned into a lifetime ban in 2004. He claims that when he got that ban put on him, he considered sending a diamond ring to the chief commissioner, Christine Nixon, thanking her for saving him a fortune. I feel like this guy is so... I don't even know the word for it. Like, he's just a showman. And I'll talk a lot more about why I feel like that. Gato got involved with the Carlton Crew, a criminal organization based in Melbourne's Carlton District in about the mid-1990s. The Carlton Crew was engaged in a bitter feud with rival Williams' family, which was also involved in organized crime. See, now I don't really know if this is an Italian mafia. I don't think it is, because I know he's involved with Calabrian mafia, but the Carlton Crew doesn't sound like it's mafia. I'm almost positive it's not. So I don't think he is a mafia figure. I think he's more organized crime. Like the way if you were in a gang like the Bloods, like you're not in the mafia, but you're in organized crime, you know? He may be associated with some Italian underworld, but I don't think he's like a made man or anything. Carl Williams, the head of the Williams family and a very well-known drug dealer, organized the murder of a lot of people that were really close friends with Gatto. He started a killing spree and just killed everyone. After being shot in the stomach by Jason and Mark Moran, who were friends of Gatto's. And I'm thinking that Jason and Mark Moran may have even been in the Carlton crew. Pretty sure they weren't like besties, but they were close. In 2002, Gatto was called to testify before the Cole Royal Commission, a large-scale investigation into misconduct within the building and construction industry in Australia. There was a $275,000 payment 
that was made by Balderstone Hornibrook, which is like a company. And this payment is made for industrial peace on the National Gallery of Victoria site in year 2000. So there's a National Gallery of Victoria. There's a site. I guess they're building a building or whatever they're doing. And there's this $275,000 payment that was made. And now it's being questioned because a lot of people are asking about why this $275,000 payment was made. The executive that made the payment, Peter Viavarali, was fired for making this payment. And when he was called to testify, he said that he made the payment because he was scared for his safety. He said that he had been advised that there was issues with the development that Balderstone was developing. I'm guessing that was the development at the National Gallery of Victoria. And that this dispute, problem, issue, whatever, this could be solved by paying Gatto $50,000 per issue that was existing. Gatto was accused, along with David the Rock Hedgecock, when Via Viroli was called in front of the Cole Royal Commission to be questioned about this $275,000 payment, he stated that he was scared for his safety, that the deal in question had people involved who were the type that would break legs if business arrangements weren't followed the way that these people would like. He said that Gatto, along with David the Rock Hedgecock, were these people, that they were the type that would break your leg if you didn't do what they wanted. Gatto took the stand and he vehemently denied any involvement with any kind of threat or coercion or intimidation. He vehemently denies it. He's like, none of that took place. No, nothing. I didn't do anything to this dude. He's lying. So no official charges were ever placed on either end, but he did get pulled into that because this dude was like, oh, I'm scared. During this trial, he does acknowledge his past mistakes but he claims that he paid for them and he was not willing to be falsely accused or blamed for the commission's investigation. He swore he was just a middleman for the payment. He didn't receive a cent from it and that he was just doing a favor for a friend. He took the payment and he passed it along to Hedgecock, who later cashed out the $150,000 that was forwarded to him, which I don't really understand. If Gatto didn't make a dime, $275,000 was sent to Gatto and then 150 was forwarded to Hedgecock. Where did the difference go if he didn't make a dime? I don't really know. But they had to have had a, an answer to this question because they didn't charge anybody. So there was someone that got that money. But Gato's like, yeah, I get, did this guy a favor. I was the middleman. I made sure that the payment was received. I made sure the payment was forwarded. I didn't do shit. And to be fair, I do kind of believe him on this one. There's a few things that I'm like, eh, you're a liar. I don't think he was a liar on that one. I don't think that he did anything. I think the guy was scared because he knew that Gato had a reputation, but I don't think Gato did anything to make him feel like he was in danger. I think he was just scared because of the reputation that Gato had. Which in and of itself is a problem, but at the end of the day, this guy decided to get involved in this construction business like he shouldn't have done the job if he was too scared to deal with these guys. In 2003, one of the most high-profile events of the gangland wars that were taking place in the 90s and early 2000s, when Jason Moran, a key member of the Australian underworld, was gunned down along with his bodyguard, Pascale Barbaro, in a broad daylight brazen shooting at a children's football clinic. 
The police investigation into the gangland wars revealed that Gato had a really, really big part to play in these conflicts that were going on. And it's even said that Gato was probably there at the scene when these two men were killed. Now, I'm pretty sure that Jason and his brother, they were on Gato's side. I'm pretty sure they were friends. So I don't think that he was a part of the Williams family, which is kind of what I've seen insinuated. I don't think so, though. I really want to say that Jason Moran was in the Carlton crew, so I'm not really 100% sure about that, but I'm pretty sure that Gato didn't have anything to do with killing Jason Moran. I'm pretty sure that was a hit to him, but I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on that part. Moran's death was followed by the death of his brother, Mark, and soon after, his father, Louis. Jason and Mark were major players in the Australian drug dealing game, and they followed their father, Louis Moran, who was a drug kingpin, into the industry. Now, before, remember that these are the brothers that I mentioned had shot Carl Williams, and that's what made this war ignite. These two brothers shot Carl Williams, and then Carl Williams retaliated and just started killing everybody, and all of these deaths were followed by this one event where these two brothers shot Carl Wilson. So following the brothers shooting him, Mark was shot outside of his family home with his wife and kids like two inches away. Like they were right there. They watched the entire thing happen. He was dead on arrival at 35 years old. Jason was killed three years later, weirdly at the same age that Mark was when he died, in the driver's seat of his car. I think it was a minivan. And his twin son and daughter were sat in the back seat of the car when it happened. He was killed in the driver's seat, and his bodyguard, Pascale Barbaro, was in the passenger seat, and he was also killed. They were parked in front of a footy clinic. A footy clinic is pretty much like a football school, and Australian football is played with the same kind of ball as American football, which is weird because I expected Australian football to be what Americans call soccer, because in the rest of the world, football is soccer. But it's pretty much the same thing as American football, with less rules and more fighting, but the same concept. Carl Williams was another client of Nicola Gobo, who we're going to go over a lot. But I just wanted to mention here that Carl Williams was a client of Nicola Gobo, and she is not a good person. (laughs) Williams pled guilty to the crime of killing Jason after being advised to do so by his lawyer. Louis Moran was killed shortly after Andrew Veneman, who Gatto admits to killing. Moran had just recently spent some time in jail, and he had been granted bail, despite the fact that the courts were really concerned when they were bailing him out that he was going to either kill witnesses in the case or that he was going to be killed himself. So when he was killed, they weren't really surprised because they knew that this war was going on and they knew that Louis Moran was a key member of this war, that both his sons were dead and he was pretty much the last man standing in that family and that they were coming for him. Gato was suspected of being the mastermind behind several murders that went down during this big gangland war and was alleged to play a central role in the criminal activities that took place in the Carlton crew. Gato claimed that he felt safe at his office and pretty much his base of operations, La Pocella, because the police were constantly surveilling the place. Constant police surveillance wouldn't really allow for a crime to take place there without them catching the person that did it, and everybody knew the cops were watching, so they weren't going to come and commit a crime on the property. He says that his friend, Graham Kinneborough, 
was killed outside of his home recently, and that he had heard that there was a price on his head. So he was actually kind of happy that the police were constantly surveilling his office because he would take all the protection that he could get. He also vowed to find out who killed his friend and to exact revenge for the death of Graham Kinneborough. In 2004, Dominic Mick Gatto was charged with the murder of Andrew Benji Veneman, an Australian underworld hitman. Gatto had known Veneman for a long time. So that means that he knows this guy. He knows that he's a paid hitman. And he suspected that Veneman actually had a hand in the murder of Graham. Gatto calls Veneman up and he's like, hey, why don't you come through to my office? Let's have a little chat, okay? Because he's pissed. He's looking for the person that killed his friend. So he calls Veneman and he's like, yo, you're number one on my suspect list. Get the fuck over here. Veneman is also very well known to be an associate of Carl Williams. So this is not a good situation for either of these dudes. Like something bad is going to happen. And he knew it. Gato knew something really bad was going to happen the minute Veneman said that he was going to come. So Veneman comes over and he ends up dead. Gato does admit to this murder. He confirms that the murder took place on Tuesday, March 23rd in 2004, and he was remanded to custody for 18 months for the murder trial. He was eventually found not guilty of murder, though. During the trial, Gato claimed that he had acted in self-defense. He said that Veneman had pulled out a 38 millimeter and tried to kill him. Gatto's defense team pretty much says that Veneman pulled out this 38, he came at Gatto, and there was a struggle. During the struggle, Gatto was able to turn the gun on Veneman and fire one shot into his neck and one shot into his eye. According to Gatto, he shot him multiple times, but he doesn't even remember how many times, which makes sense because this is a really intense, high stress moment. You're not going to know exactly how many times a gun goes off. Like all you know is you're fighting for your life. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what happened. I don't know if there was really a struggle or if he just put one in his neck. Like who knows what actually happened. But if this is actually how it happened, it makes sense that he doesn't know how many times he shot him. Gatto also claims that during this argument, Veneman implicated himself on the deaths of Dino Debra, Paul Kalapolitis, and Graham Kinneborough, which is like a W for him. He's like, yeah, I was going after the person that killed my friend Graham, and I found him. He says, like, Veneman outright said it. He said, like, oh, these guys ain't shit. I don't care that I killed them. I'll kill your ass too. And that's what led to this struggle. What I personally think is I think Veneman turned around and was like, yeah, I killed your friend. I killed these other people and do something, bitch. And Gato was like, okay, watch me. And then claimed self-defense. But I mean, I don't know. I'm not even mad. This guy's like a known serial killer. He's a hitman and he got taken out. That's what happens to hitmen. So obviously, if I'm sitting here wondering what happened here... The media in Australia is also going to be sitting here wondering what happened. Gato's involvement in the murder of Veneman remains a controversial topic in all of Australian media. Like, nobody agrees on what happened. Some people see Gato's actions as self-defense, while others see him as a cold-blooded killer who eliminated a potential threat to his criminal empire. I see him as someone that had someone tell him to his face, like, yeah, I killed your friend that you're grieving right now, and took him out. It'd be like that sometimes, man. I don't know. (laughs) You live the life. You die in the life. It just happens. 
In addition to his alleged involvement in the murder of Veneman, Gatto has been unofficially linked to a number of other organized crime figures in Melbourne. In particular, it has been alleged that Gatto had links to both Vince Benvenuto and Farouk Orman, who were involved in the murder of Victor Pierce in 2002. Benvenuto was charged with Pierce's murder, while Orman was also charged. They were both found guilty, but Orman was later acquitted in 2019, so he is not in jail right now. During the trial, it was alleged that Gatto had links to both men and that he may have even been involved in the planning of Pierce's murder. Gatto never hid the fact that he was close with these guys. He strongly stood behind Farouk Orman, even hosting a gala fundraiser to raise money for Orman's legal defense in 2008. Despite these allegations, Gatto has never been so much as arrested in connection with Pierce's murder. I feel like Gatto is one big juxtaposition. He sits there and acts completely confused as to why people associate him with crime and accuse him of committing crimes and acting immorally in business dealings. But he'll totally play up his, like, gangster persona. He had a meeting with the Herald Sun in 2009 where he told the writer, When you guys were five minutes late, I thought, shit, this might be a setup. I was getting suspicious. No problems, though, because I had two blokes near me with guns, just in case. Like, come on, that is clearly playing up to this whole gangster thing. Obviously, that wasn't the least bit true. You would never hear a real gangster talking like this. There is not one place that you can find someone like John Gotti or Joe Gallo, real-life gangsters that real-life regularly kill people. I just bring them up because, like, they're the ones that come to mind when I think of gangsters that were, like, regularly in the newspapers or in media, having conversations with media. But there's no way, shape, or form that you would ever hear somebody like these guys telling a reporter that they have guys with guns nearby. He is trying to get it across to this reporter that he's a gangster. He runs in circles where he could be set up in a situation where he would need somebody with a gun. People that really need guns don't tell somebody that there's someone nearby with a gun. They want you to think that they're on their own and be surprised by the dude nearby with a gun. Later in that interview, he was asked about his violent past, and he told the reporter, It's all bullshit. There's no violence ever, and if there was, there would be charges, I promise you, because I'm under the microscope so much. Which... I don't believe that. <laughs> I think he has a lot of cops, a lot of judges, and a lot of really important people in his pocket, which is why he is not getting arrested on a regular basis. Like, he literally got away with hitting and killing someone with a car. <laughs> like, I don't know much about the situation, but I can guarantee you there was something that led up to that. I guarantee you that guy that he hit and killed with a car was not just some stranger. So, speaking of the Herald... There's a really good article on Gatto in the Herald Sun, but with all due respect, fuck the Herald Sun. It's one of those media outlets that don't even let you preview their articles without paying for an annual subscription. And let me tell you, the article that they had was absolutely wonderful. I wish I could see their articles. I wish I could see all the stuff that they have on him, but they are behind a goddamn paywall and I cannot stand that shit. Like, screw the Herald Sun. I pay for the New York Times. 
I need to be able to go into the New York Times newspapers and see the clips and take pictures. And I report a lot about people in New York, so it was worth it. But even the New York Times will allow you to preview an article, and I'm pretty sure that you can pay. And I'm pretty sure that you can read the whole article. You just can't go into the actual newspaper and see it written on the actual newspaper. But even them, even the New York Times, they'll allow you to preview an article and it doesn't just immediately bring you to a paywall without getting any information. Like, Jesus Christ, man. Are times really that hard for you, Harold? Like, that's sad. Gato's name was catapulted and became much more of a household name in 2008 when a TV show named Underbelly was released. It was a kind of true crime drama that was centered around the underworld in Australia. Simon Westaway portrayed Mick Gatto, so it was like a Boardwalk Empire type of show where they used the actual criminal's names, so his name in the show was Mick Gatto, so he became pretty well known. The show was known as kind of like The Sopranos, one of those shows that like it glamorizes the criminal underworld. It gives the impression that all that there is to it is like suits and cars and money and cigars and girls and just the high life, you know, it's a glamorization of the criminal underworld. The show ran from 2008 to 2013, and there was apparently a really, really, really big fan base. It was a really big show because everybody in Australia seems to know who this dude is and have watched the show. I personally never heard of him before, so he's definitely not big in America. I've never even heard of this show. I kind of want to check it out. I might. But yeah, he's definitely not big in America, but definitely, definitely is in Australia. I don't know, if you guys are from Australia and this guy is just like the same as John Gotti is here in America, let me know. In 2009, Gatto was accused by an employee of assaulting him at his crane company's office. The man pressed charges, but he changed his mind and never followed through on pressing the charges. And I totally wonder how that happened. Like, he just seems to always slip by. I wonder how that happened. I bet you that he was just like, oh, wait, wait, wait. The assault didn't really happen. Totally made of his own volition. There was another time that Gato shot at and missed a taxi driver in a fight when he's wasted, and he didn't get arrested for that one either. So don't tell me that you would get arrested all the time if you were doing crime because there's such a spotlight on you because you shot at a taxi driver and you didn't get arrested. So mm -mm, not today, not here. Gato's involvement in resolving business disputes in the construction industry and his appearance before the Coal Royal Commission added to his reputation as kind of like a controversial figure in the Melbourne underworld, just infamous and, you know, the reputation that gangsters get. He had well-known connections with a wide range of people. He would have, like, best friends in places from, like, high-ranking union members. Those like John Setka, a trade unionist. And he's like big. He's like a famous trade unionist. Think like Jimmy Hoffa level. That's John Setka in Australia. So he's really good friends with John Setka. He described Setka as an excellent union leader and a great bloke. All the way to members of like various biker clubs and people that are in jail for murder like Farouk Gorman. Although it's never been officially proven, he also has a lot of really strong relationships with a lot of police officers. So to say that 
one or two of them are in his pocket, especially considering the low number of times that he's been arrested, is probably an understatement. At the premiere, there was like TV stars, media executives, publishers, the works. And for good reason, he's often described as a chameleon for his ability to comfortably live in both lowly criminal worlds and the highest part of high society. Like this man can comfortably exist anywhere. I can't even comfortably exist in my own home, so good for him. While a lot of people saw him as like this problem solver that could get things done and had just like a suave kind of thing going on. A lot of other people saw him as a dangerous individual who used illegal tactics to achieve his goals in all aspects of his life, including business. In 2012, Dominic Mikgato hosted a fundraising dinner for the Cure for Life Foundation, a charity established by renowned Sydney neurosurgeon Dr. Charlie Tao. The event was held in Melbourne and was attended by prominent figures from various industries. Gato's involvement with the foundation raised a lot of eyebrows. Like, this is a dude that has a reputation as an underworld figure, a mafia boss. He's known for his organized crime. What the hell is this guy doing involved in this charity dinner? The relationship between Gato and Dr. Tao was further scrutinized in 2019 when the Sydney Morning Herald contacted Dr. Tao's office about allegations of sexual harassment that were made against the doctor by colleagues in Arkansas, United States. Surprisingly, within 24 hours of them making this call and asking, Gato's associates got back to the journalist on behalf of Dr. Teo. So it's like, wait, what the fuck? Like, what is going on here? This is way too much intermingling between a renowned, well-known, well-liked, well-loved neurosurgeon and a criminal underworld figure. Like, not, it's something is fishy. And people are starting to taste that. The response from Gato's associates raised questions about their involvement in Dr. Tao's affairs and the nature of their relationship because, like, what the hell is going on? The Sydney Morning Herald reported that the response had been written by a former criminal lawyer who had previously represented Gato, and the response had been sent from an email address linked to Gato's company. I wonder if it was Nicola Gobo. That would be interesting. This development added to the speculation from all of the Australian media and public that Gato's relationship with Dr. Tao went a lot further than just this fundraising event in 2012. While Dr. Tao has denied any wrongdoing, and he pretty much is like, uh, I didn't ask them to send a response. I don't even know what response you're talking about. Just put all the distance in the world that he could... The incident raised real concerns about the ethical implications of an association with an individual like Gato. Dr. Tao is a well-known figure in the medical community. He's well-liked, well-respected. People literally trust him with their lives, particularly for his work in treating brain cancer. Can you imagine having this dude as your doctor? You're getting treated for brain cancer. He's putting you under. He's doing surgeries. He's watching over your chemo. He's literally cutting your head open and you see him in the newspaper standing next to Gato and like people from Gato's company are responding to questions to tell like no I wouldn't be okay with that I would get me a new doctor right away this relationship also raised a lot of criticism for the impact that this relationship would have on the reputation of the Cure for Life Foundation so now Dr. Tao's little baby foundation Cure for Life 
which is doing really good work and amazing things, that's being called into question because of Dr. Tao's relationship with Gato. Because, like, are you going to feel comfortable donating a lot of money to a foundation that has deep ties with an underworld figure? Like, I wouldn't. I don't know if that's going to a foundation or if it's going to, you know, help TVs fall off the back of a truck. Like, I definitely wouldn't make a donation to that company knowing that Gato was involved. I'm sorry, I wouldn't. And now, I mean, there's like a whole bunch of questions surrounding this, but at the end of the day, let's be real. Gato and Dr. Tao, they both continued on with their lives. It's not, it wasn't the worst thing ever. It wasn't the downfall of both of them that they had a relationship. It was just something that brought questions up. But this incident did bring to light the potential consequences of associating with individuals from the criminal underworld and the importance of maintaining a clear line between personal and professional relationships. So what this did was it put a serious hamper on Gato's ability to mingle and, you know, easily go from one society to the other, because now people in high society, people with amazing and spectacular reputations, they're a little more hesitant to have anything to do with Gato, where before they would regularly have their pictures taken with him, they would go to his events, they would do all of this stuff. Now they're a little like, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't take that picture. And that's going to have a really bad impact on Gato either way. Which, if you're looking at it subjectively, honestly isn't fair. Like, what has Gato actually really done up until this point? He killed somebody but was found not guilty and it was found to be in self-defense. Other than that, I mean, what? He robbed a place when he was like 17. He really hasn't done anything that he's been charged for. So the fact that they're making somebody a pariah or an outcast for having anything to do with Gato is not really fair. And it's not really fair to put so much pressure on the rest of the respected community to stay away from him because he really hasn't done anything. But at the same time, you can't feel too bad for him when he's going and having these interviews and telling a reporter that he has people nearby with guns. Like, what do you expect to happen? In 2016, Dominic Mick Gatto was charged with possession of an unregistered firearm and possession of a firearm and ammunition without a license. The charges were laid after Victoria Police executed a search warrant on Gatto's Melbourne home in May of 2016, where they found the unregistered 22 caliber rifle and ammunition in the house. Gatto, who was a former boxing promoter, had his fight promotional license withdrawn by the Napthine government for this very reason. So, like, he had this gun, it wasn't registered, he got charged with it, and now he cannot go and be a promoter or a manager for boxing because of this gun charge. That kind of sucks. Despite all the negative stuff that he does, despite all the trouble that he gets into and all the shitty things that he does, he claims to have raised over $4.5 million for charity over the last 10 years. So that's pretty respectable. In 2017, it was alleged that Gato had been involved in assisting with the resolution of matters involving Stephen Dank and the Ascendon Football Club Supplements controversy. Dank, who's a sports scientist, had been involved in administering supplements to players at the club, which had resulted in a high-profile investigation by the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority, ASADA. Gato was believed to have helped broker a deal between Dank and the club, which resulted in Dank receiving a payout. So pretty much, Gato set up the meeting between the club and Dank. So the club buys it, they purchase this supplement, and then 
when they do that, they give it to everybody at the sports club or the gym, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, the anti-doping authority steps in and they're like, wait, this is a little more close to steroids than we're okay with. And now there's a scandal. The involvement of Gato in this controversial matter raised eyebrows in the media and in the public, especially given his reputation for being involved in organized crime and his past criminal charges. However, Gato maintained that he was simply acting as a mediator between the parties and that his involvement was purely for the purpose of resolving the dispute. And I don't think it's fair to put this on Gato. Like, you can't expect him to know every ingredient in some supplement that's being made. Like, how the hell would he know that? He's not a scientist. How the hell is he going to know that there's too much fucking protein in this protein powder like whatever the hell it was it's kind of messed up that they put this on him he had nothing to do with it he just like introduced the two he was literally like the person like hey dank meet the person that fucking represents this club person that represents the club meet dank they set up this business arrangement steven dank apparently messes up this protein or whatever the fuck it is the supplement and now all of a sudden it's mikato's fault because he's a well-known figure like that's not really fair in April of 2017, it was reported that Mick Gatto had settled a long-running dispute with the Australian Taxation Office. According to the reports, Gatto owed them $15 million. Thankfully for Gatto, though, they agreed to settle the matter for less than $4 million. In order to pay off the ATO, Gatto sold his lower plenty home for $4.1 million. So he literally sold this house that he had and took the entire proceeds and gave it right to the taxes because that's one thing you do not want to do. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. If you're in Australia, if you're in the US, you could be in Germany, Russia, like it doesn't matter where you are. The one thing you do not want to do is not pay your taxes. Do not do it. That's how they got Al Capone. That's how they got half the mafia people. They will take you down. If they don't have any other way to take you down, they will take you down for taxes. So here's a warning, people. Pay your goddamn taxes. The home that was located in Lower Plenty was in Melbourne's northeast suburbs, and it was a luxury property with six bedrooms, a tennis court, an indoor swimming pool, and a cinema. Gato and his family had lived in the Lower Plenty home for more than a decade, but it was reported that the family decided to sell the property to pay off this debt because, like, it wasn't their main residence. It was a beautiful location, but it's not where they lived 24-7, and if they're not, you know, swimming in cash, you gotta do something, you gotta sell off some of your assets. Luckily, they didn't have to sell off their main house that they lived in every day, but, I mean, this is a really nice house that they had to sell quick to pay off this tax issue. Gato and his family also own a residence in Mount Martha, located in the Mornington Peninsula. The Mount Martha residence is another luxury property, featuring stunning ocean views, multiple bedrooms, a swimming pool, and a tennis court. Maybe these guys like tennis, I don't know. Really super into tennis because every place they have is a tennis court. I feel like that's like a status symbol, like, oh, you think your house is nice? Does it have a tennis court? No? Shut the fuck up, bitch. Sit down. My house has a tennis court. When I first moved into my house in New York, like, I hadn't ever lived here as, like, the main owner about, like, a year or two ago. It was always my parents' house, and I took the house over because my mom passed away and my dad was just him, so I took over the actual house and I started paying the bills and everything. It has such a big property, I highly, highly, highly considered building a handball wall because I absolutely love handball. And I was like, think of the brag that is. Like, that's such a sick brag. Oh yeah, I have a handball wall. Like, that would be dope. 
but I didn't do it because I have so much money that I have to drop on like construction and stuff. I do not have the money to do that. So no. The settlement with the ATO dispute allowed Gato to avoid the risk of bankruptcy, and he was able to continue his life without the burden of a significant debt hanging over his head. And not only is that a significant debt, that is the threat of your freedom. If you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. So yeah, it's risk of like debt, but it's also risk of losing your freedom, sitting in jail for money. In 2020, Dominic McGato launched a defamation lawsuit against the Australian Broadcasting Company, or ABC, over an article that he claimed made him out to be a murderer and one of Australia's most violent criminals. The article was based on court proceedings in which Gato was obviously involved. The lawsuit was filed in the Victorian Supreme Court and Gato was seeking $250,000 in damages. He claimed that the article was false and defamatory and it damaged his reputation a lot. He argued that the article had portrayed him as like this violent criminal when in fact he hadn't been convicted of any such offenses. The ABC denied the allegations and they argued that the article was more than fair and very accurate. They made sure to state that they didn't claim that they had an opinion. They didn't say that he was a violent criminal. They just relayed that other people had said that he's a violent criminal. The article which was written by Sarah Farnsworth and Nino Bucci, was published in February of 2019 and is still public on the website. A lot of the controversy came from the police's claims that Nicola Gobo would have risked her life if her identity was uncovered. The article was based on a document which outlined the police's claims about risks to Nicola Gobo if her identity as a police snitch namely a secret police affidavit which contained evidence from Inspector Brooke Hall. In the 2016 court document, Inspector Hall made a statement that informer 3838, now known to be the gangland lawyer turned police informant, Miss Gobo, would almost certainly be murdered if her former clients were told that she had been speaking with police and acting as their lawyer at the same time, and that Mick Gatto, Horty Machbell, the brother of Tony Machbell, and others had threatened her. And now I'm gonna go a lot more into her, but let me just say, this is the worst woman ever. Like, I hate this girl. I hate her. Mick Gatto is nothing compared to this chick. Like, Oh, she's the worst. She's disgusting. I hate her. I hate her. So that group specifically stated that if Informer 3838 were found to be the human source, then she would be killed. And that is exact word for word what Inspector Hall's evidence said. The affidavit was from a court case brought by Victoria Police to prevent Miss Gobo's identity from being revealed. Throughout the trial, Gato, 64, told the court that the article had gone too far and damaged him and his children's reputation. He said that they crossed the line by calling me a murderer, a hitman, and one of the most violent men in Australia. There is nothing further from the truth. Justice Keogh said that Mr. Gatto was a newsworthy and legitimate subject of public interest. The judge said that ABC were entitled to devote the report to those parts of the proceedings that concerned Mr. Gatto, provided that in doing so, the article was not so tendentious or otherwise slanted as to render it a distorted report. He said that far from being distorted, the article was entirely accurate and correlated with what occurred in those parts of the proceedings which were reported. 
The ABC also argued that the article was protected by the defense of qualified privilege, which allows media organizations to report on matters of public interest without fear of legal action, provided they act in good faith and without malice. So it's pretty much the same as like a media outlet in America saying like, hey, freedom of speech, I can say what I want as long as I'm not like straight up lying. And that's exactly what they said. Like, we didn't lie. It's the truth. In 2021, Justice Andrew Coe ruled in favor of the ABC, stating that the article was accurate and had correlated with what occurred and those part of the proceedings which were reported. In other words, like, they didn't lie. They, they said what they said. Yeah, it was mean, but that's what was going on. Like, they literally wrote word for word what was said. And, you know, sorry it hurt your feelings, but it's the truth. He also found that ABC had acted in good faith and without malice, and that the article was protected by the defense of qualified privilege. In other words, like, if this had gone down in America, they would be like, hey, uh, freedom of speech, you can't tell someone that they can't tell the truth. And that's exactly what they did. The ruling was a pretty big blow to Gatto, who was ordered to pay the legal costs of the ABC. Gatto had previously been involved in several high-profile legal cases, including his 2004 trial for the murder of Andrew Veneman, in which he was found not guilty. So, like, he has spent a lot of time in court. He was a crime figure, and he had close relationships with the Calabrian Mafia. So this dude goes around suing pretty much any media outlet that mentions his name. And that's why I said in the beginning, like, let's hope he never sees this video because I could get sued. I don't know if an Australian can sue an American, but I mean, if it's possible, he'll definitely do it. I saw a mention of a lawsuit against The Age, another Australian media outlet, but I couldn't find information on it. So I removed it and I wasn't even going to tell you guys. But after I saw that he had also sued Fairfax Media, I think it's pretty safe to say that that one mention that I saw of his lawsuit against The Age is probably true. He probably did sue them. I'm not stating this as a fact because I don't have, like, corroboration. I don't see it, like, in print anywhere. I saw it one time, and I don't trust that source, but the fact that he sued the ABC and Fairfax Media, I'm thinking that that one mention of him suing The Age, which is a media outlet, I see a lot of articles from them, I could totally see it happening. Even though he continuously sues anybody that insinuates that he's a gangster or ties him to the crimes that he committed, he does admit to his friendships with gangland figures when put on the stand. He gets upset that he's always mentioned as an underworld figure, a gangster, a mobster, a mafia figure, and not a colorful businessman. Because they're literally reporting on the truth. Okay, so now let's get to Nicola Gobo because I've been waiting the whole episode for this. Nicola Gobo is the lowest of the low. Like, this is the trashiest human being ever made, okay? She's horrible. Nicola Gobo was a woman who used to be an attorney for Mick, but she started working for the police. They call her a barrister turned informant, which a barrister in Australia is just a lawyer. So she would provide police with information about the people that she represented. So in other words, like, she would find a gangster that's in legal trouble. She would go to them, have like a conversation with them, right? Okay, like, you know, I'm your lawyer. We got attorney-client privilege. Like, I don't know if that exists over in Australia, but it does here in America. But she would go to them, be like, okay, what's going on? And they would tell her the truth, trusting her as their lawyer. And then she would turn around and go tell the cops what they would tell her. So she would pretend to be representing these people, but also informing on these people. 
And a lot of times she would end up putting these people in jail in the first place and then pretending to be their lawyer on the other side of it. Like she would, she would literally, like if she's representing Mick Gatto, she would hang out with Mick Gatto. She would talk to him about any kind of like legal action that he had going on or whatever. And then like if she heard him mention a crime or anything, she would go to the cops and be like, hey, you know, this guy's about to do a drug deal at this time. And they would arrest him. And then she would represent him for that case. So she was literally creating business for herself. Gato discussed how he had a conversation with her where he told her that he didn't want her around anymore because it would make him look bad if she was an informant. And he said that, like, she started crying and denying that she ever was, like, an informant. She would never do that. Wah, wah, wah. Crocodile tears coming down the face. Not me, never. But this bitch really is. Gato said that she had been hanging around like a bad smell for years. And he said that she couldn't have ever given the police anything of substance because there was nothing to give them. And he never did anything wrong ever. Not Megato, guys. He doesn't do crime. He's a colorful businessman. So Nicola Gobo, she tells police that Gato is infatuated with her. He's in love with her. He's obsessed with her. He trusts her and he would give her anything. The police look at this and they're like, cha freaking ching Cha-ching. They literally wrote a report where they stated, what an amazing golden opportunity for us, for her to represent this man. Because she's literally going back and telling the police every word that comes out of his mouth. They first began their relationship when they met in 2007 regarding Farouk Orman's arrest for the murder of Victor Pierce. Because when I was talking about the murder of Victor Pierce, I told you that Mick Gatto was kind of implicated in it. He wasn't arrested for it, but he was mentioned a lot in the trial. So I feel like rightly he assumed like he needed a lawyer for this. So he gets her to represent him and every word she says to him goes back to the police. After sitting in jail for 12 years, Orman's case was retried and it was found that the trial was so tainted by Gobo's involvement that Orman shouldn't be in jail. And he was acquitted and immediately set free. But he still did 12 years. Like, I guess it's better than having to go through the whole sentence of life, but come on, man. This man literally spent 12 years in jail because of this bitch. This case is all, like, so messed up. She is a mob lawyer turned rat. She's representing Orman in his murder trial, but at the same time, she's going to the witnesses and encouraging them to give the best evidence against him. This woman is just like an absolute scumbag. When she was in law school in 1993, she was arrested and charged with drug charges after a raid of her house turned up amphetamines, weed, and a bunch of weapons. She pled guilty and she was given a good behavior bond. So I'm assuming that just means that, like she didn't even do any time in prison. Like, you know, you were whatever. You're not a bad person. We'll let you go. This is your first offense. Okay. So now two years later, yet another raid is carried out and yet another yield. They find more amphetamines in her house. So she starts freaking out and she's like, oh shit, well, there goes my law career. I'm done. All this time in law school, all for nothing. Oh my God, this is terrible. Look at the consequences of my own actions. Well, lo and behold, no charges were ever pressed after this raid. That's kind of weird, huh? Well, not when you learn that she was registered as police informer G395 shortly after this raid, in which she claims she didn't know. But like, come on. She says, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know I was an informer. Like, are you 
fucking kidding me? You're most of the way through law school, and you haven't the foggiest idea that you just got away with drugs being found in a raid of your home? Nah, like, you're a snitch. You're just a snitch, okay? Like, and you're the worst type of snitch. You're not even, like... You're worse than those mafia guys that, like, put Mike on. Like, you're worse than that. Because these are... You should be a trusted source for anybody. Someone could have done the worst thing in the world and they still deserve a goddamn lawyer. Honestly, it seems like this bitch is just, like, a hanger-on. She was dating Brian Wilson, a drug dealer at the time, and that's why her house kept getting raided. So she's dating this drug dealer, her house gets raided, and she decides to turn informant. Then she becomes a lawyer and starts to represent all these underworld figures and all these like well-known bad criminals in Australia. And all the while, she's ratting them out to police. And now this huge scandal blows up. Because the courts out her identity and they rat her out to the country. They're like, ooh, she's snitching. She literally gave information to the police. They would arrest the guys that she gave information about. Then she would represent them on their criminal trials. There was a trial to lift the suppression order to keep her identity a secret. So pretty much like she's like, wait, you cannot release my identity. Please don't tell them that I'm a rat. And the judge in that trial lit her up. Correctly so. He's like, listen, normally we keep people's identities a secret when they snitch. We don't tell, we don't out people's identities. But he literally said that Gobo's actions in purporting to act as counsel for the convicted person while covertly informing against them were fundamental and appalling breaches of Gobo's obligations as counsel to her clients and to her duties to the court. Likewise, Victoria police were guilty of reprehensible conduct in knowingly encouraging Gobo to do as she did and were involved in sanctioning atrocious breaches of the sworn duty of every police officer. So this judge is like, fuck you, fuck your privacy, you're going global, bitch. We are telling everybody you're a rat. After the suppression order was lifted and she was outed as a rat, nearly everybody that she had ever represented that ended up in prison were able to be given a retrial. There's over a thousand convictions that they believe were tainted by her involvement. The courts overturned multiple convictions, but honestly, this bitch should have been given a lot of time in jail, and she didn't. She got a slap on the wrist. They overturned the conviction of Tony Mockbell, who had been sitting in jail for a cocaine charge since 2000. In 2000, he was found guilty after he was represented by Gobo, after Gobo gave police the information that got him arrested in the first place. So Gobo is hanging out with Mockbell, and she hears him talk about this cocaine deal. She goes to the police, tells the police that he's doing this cocaine deal. He does the deal, gets caught because she ratted him out. And then when he's on trial, she's representing him. And then she's turning around to the witnesses and like, oh yeah, you should just say these really bad things about him. The Farouk Orman conviction, because remember, this is the dude that had been convicted for killing Victor Pierce. And he was let out after 12 years. The conviction was overturned in 2019 after he was convicted in 2002. After they discovered that she had suppressed evidence that would have proven that he was not involved in the murder. But they wouldn't compensate him for his lost time. Like that man sat in jail for 17 years for a crime that he probably didn't commit. A conviction against Slate Svetanovsky was overturned in 2020, one year before his sentence was completed, after he had already served 11 
years. So like he was given a 12 year sentence, he served 11 years, and then his sentence was overturned in 2020. In this case, Gobo convinced a key witness to testify against him, the guy that she was representing, and she was never convicted of any of her actions. Her boyfriend, who she has two kids with, is in jail for five years on a drug charge that has absolutely nothing to do with any of this. But honestly, she probably put him there. But all of these people lost so many years of their lives due to her negligence and her manipulation. And this bitch just walks away like nothing ever happened. She did resurface in 2020 to help with a trial investigating the management of police informants. And she cried about how police forced her into a black hole and they told her that she wouldn't be able to live with her children if she didn't go into this black hole and just disappear. And they didn't care about the poor innocent children and when, 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 like, Bitch, did they care more than you did when you had people spending their whole fucking lives in prison for crimes that they should not have gone to jail for? No? Then shut up. Fuck you and your kids. It makes me so mad. Like, this is the worst miscarriage of justice I think ever seen. Like, the most bizarre, crazy fucking case ever. Okay, so let's go back to talking about Gato. <laughs> Gato has been well known for his involvement in the Melbourne underworld, and he's had a controversial reputation in the media. Like, some love him, some hate him. It's, like, think about John Gotti, same kind of thing. Like, some people hate John Gotti, some people love him, you know? Most people are lighting off fireworks when he gets out of jail. It's just, you know, that's the way it is. Especially somebody that was portrayed in a TV show, and they're like, oh my god, he's so cool. What a criminal, what a badass, yay. Despite this controversial reputation, he has also been involved in various charitable causes and claims to have raised millions for charity over the years. And now I'm going to talk about something, like, heartbreakingly sad. I'm going to try to get through this, because honestly, I've talked about so many things on this show. I don't think I've ever shed a tear on one of my episodes. I might shed a tear here, because this is, this is really hard to talk about. Gato's son, Justin, tragically passed away on October 30th, 2018, at the age of 34 years old. Justin was found dead next to an apartment building in Melbourne's CBD, which I'm guessing is something business district, and it looks like he fell from the balcony of an apartment building on Spencer Street. He was found around midnight, and they made sure to say that the death was not being reported as suspicious. So to me, like, I don't know shit, I don't know nothing, but to me, it looks like a case of the S-word. Justin had done an interview with a media outlet. It looks like it's a magazine named Stuff two months before he died, where he discussed that he felt alive again after having a long-standing issue with methamphetamine addiction. He was recently in Bali for rehab at Siavana Bali, a 14-bed addiction treatment center. When he spoke with Stuff two months before his death, he said that he hadn't had drugs in the system in almost three months and had plans to attend a personal development course in Ubud, which is in central Bali, and when he was done with that, he wanted to start working to help other addicts as part of his 12-step program. He had been suffering with addiction since he was 21 years old, so over a decade at this point, and this was his second rehab in Bali and fifth rehab overall. He spoke to Stuff about the things that drugs had robbed him of his ego, his pride, his courage, his goals, and how he had drug-induced schizophrenia. But I don't think that was ever actually diagnosed because he says, every time I use a drug, I've got multiple personalities manifest. And 
that's not schizophrenia. It's multiple personality, or I think it's called, like, DID right now. So I think that's one that, like, he just kind of diagnosed himself with. Because I've never heard of schizophrenia having multiple personalities. Like, I know what schizophrenia is, and it's not multiple personalities. So um, I don't think that a doctor ever gave him that diagnosis, but he's pretty much saying that he's a different person when he does drugs, which is fair. Like, that drugs are serious. They make you a different person. So it looks like he went to rehab. He came home. He couldn't take it anymore. And everything happened. And I just find this heartbreaking. I honestly, I have so many friends that I've lost to drug addiction. Like, I'm not even joking. I could name off at least 30 people off the top of my head that I personally know and like know well that have overdosed and died. It is such a tragic thing to happen. And I actually have a cousin who committed suicide due to this is a trigger warning right now. I put it on the screen before, but I am going to give you a trigger warning. I'm going to be talking about suicide. So if this is something that triggers you, either leave the video now, or as I said, I have chapters in every one of my videos. Just skip ahead to the next chapter. I don't want to upset you. I don't want to trigger you. So don't stay here if talks of suicide or something that triggers you. I actually have a cousin who committed suicide due to a drug problem that he had. Personally, I have never touched like hard drugs because I grew up in an environment where I was surrounded by hard drugs on a regular basis. So I grew up having a really strong fear of those kind of things. But most of the people that I know that died of overdoses or even had an addiction, they were amazing people. And they made one bad decision. One bad decision is all it took for their entire lives to be gone. And I'm so tired of hearing like, oh, they're a drug addict. They made that decision. They wake up every day and they decide to use. No, they wake up every day and they decide to do the thing that sustains them. It's like telling you, oh, well, when you wake up every morning, you eat food. Like you deserve to be fat because you eat food. One bad decision is all it took. And from then on out, that is necessary to keep them alive. As easy as just walking away. You don't get to just make the choice. Oh, I'm just never going to do it again. Not with this kind of stuff. Not with methamphetamines, heroin, that kind of stuff. You just, it's not that way. It really breaks my heart that this kid went through this. And it breaks my heart for the entire family. Because let me tell you, my cousin was like an older brother to me. Growing up, we were really close. And like, he was the one that would go to any of the guys that I dated. And he would tell them like, oh, I'll kill you if you hurt her. Like, he was that person for me. Because I never had any siblings. I'm an only child. So I was really close to him. And when he died, it really messed up like my entire family. They all, it really messed us up. And this just goes to show you that money isn't everything. My cousin was addicted to heroin and he was poor and he struggled and he ended up committing suicide. And this kid had all the money in the world. He was able to access rehab in Bali and he met the same fate. Drugs don't have a class or a gender or like anything. They can happen to anybody, anywhere, at any time. And it absolutely ruins your life no matter who you are, where you are. That's it. You're done. Like you, you get hooked on this shit and you are done. Obviously, you can get better. There is a way out, but it's so hard. And I got to tell you, like out of all the addicts that I know, I would say I know maybe three people that were on heavy drugs and got better. Everyone else died. It's an epidemic and it's heartbreaking and it's not their fault. It's not a decision that they make. 
So if you're a person that thinks like that, like you're just a shitty human being with no empathy. According to the article written by Stuff after his death, Justin was at the apartment on Spencer Street because it was an apartment that the Gatto family owned. And it's believed that the Gatto family was in the apartment at the time that he died, which is just the most heartbreaking thing ever. Like very similar to my situation. So I definitely feel for him. And this is just really sad. So just a little side note before I move on. But as of July 2022, you can use your cell phone and call 988 to reach out to a suicide and crisis lifeline call center. They're available 24-7 and they provide support to anybody who needs it. 988 Lifeline is a USA national hotline that's completely free for the entire United States. They have multiple languages that they speak and it's definitely the way to go if you feel like you're in need of it. Like, this isn't a promo. I've never talked to anybody from there. I have experience with this shit. I've lost people to suicide. I've been hospitalized for it myself. There is nothing wrong with needing help, and there is nothing wrong with accepting it. The world is better with you in it, so if you have those kind of feelings, please pick up your phone, 988. Press call. You will have somebody on the phone to help you. Gato is known for being a family man, and his children and his grandchildren often appear on his social media posts. In 2016, he expressed his love for his family in an interview with the Herald Sun, saying, I love my family, I love my wife, I love my children, and I love my grandkids. He has also spoken publicly about the importance of family values and the need to protect them. In a 2012 interview with The Australian, he said, I think family is the most important thing. You've got to look after your family, you've got to look after your friends, and you've got to be loyal to them. Despite Gato's involvement in organized crime and the Melbourne gang wars, Gato has kept his family life completely separate from any of his criminal activities. He has stated that his children and the rest of his family are absolutely not involved in his business dealings and they should not be targeted because of his actions. Overall, while Gato's criminal activities have brought him notoriety and a lot of controversy, he remains a devoted family man who values his loved ones above everything else. His daughter, Sarah, recently made headlines in a lawsuit that she filed. Sarah Gatto, now Sarah Awad, married Danny Awad, a known cocaine trafficker. She recently sued Jonathan Lunt, a member of the corporation committee of the board that her husband owns. So like her husband owns a business, Jonathan Lunt is on the board of her husband's business. Apparently there was some issue with a pin and this pin needed to be replaced and the tradesman came out and he quoted them $500 for these two pins. Jonathan wrote an email and he experienced all of our worst nightmares. He accidentally CC'd Sarah. Like you ever get that terrified feeling when you send a text like talking shit about someone you're like oh my god did I send it to them he actually accidentally sent it to her it was supposed to be talking shit to a co-worker and he sent it to her oh the dread the death melting like that triggers my anxiety so bad <laughs> the email read he the tradesman also said that for him to put some pins back in the wall will cost $500 further out of hours callback Yep, that's $250 per pin for 30 seconds of work. What the... Guess when you're managed by criminals, what to expect by their preferred contractors? Now, again, this was not meant for Sarah. This email was supposed to just be a shit-talking email about his boss who was pissing him off and he was supposed to send it to his coworker, and that was that. He accidentally CC'd Sarah. <laughs> she sued him 
saying that the email affected her business and seriously hurt her feelings. She throws a hissy fit and she's like, oh, I am not a criminal. How dare he say that? How could you call me a criminal? It looks like she's following in daddy's footsteps and suing everybody that says a negative word about her. And you know, that's your right. You could spend every day of your life in court if you want to. I mean, who the fuck is anybody else to tell you no? Jonathan, he's like, hey, I wasn't referring to you. I was referring to your criminal husband who owns the business. So I didn't, I wasn't hurting your feelings. I wasn't talking shit about you. I was talking shit about your husband. Sit down. Nobody cares about you. Her husband, Danny Awad, was at the time presently serving a 15-year jail sentence for his role in importing over 22 kilos of cocaine from Mexico to Australia by hiding it in the paper trays of Xerox printers, which, I mean, absolute genius. Like, let's give him a little credit for that. That is a genius idea. He was arrested with co-conspirator John Tambakakis, and they were both convicted in 2019. The street value of the drugs that he was arrested for were about $12.4 million. Gatto testified at his son-in-law's hearing as a character witness, but honestly, I feel like that probably did more harm than good. Like, oh, hey, you all know me because I'm one of the most notorious criminals in this country, but I'm telling you guys, this is a good dude. He would never commit a crime. I don't commit crimes. He doesn't commit crimes. We don't commit crimes. Recently, his conviction, along with the conviction of Tampa Kakis, was overturned due to some nasty shit that the judge had said during the trial. Something along the lines of, because Awad had chosen to give testimony and, like, tough out the cross-examination, that that was a pretty good sign that he was guilty. After the case was reviewed in higher courts, it was found that the appeals should be allowed, and the pair's convictions were overturned because of this comment. A fresh trial was ordered, but Awad was able to apply for bail, and he was able to get out, and he spent a tropical holiday in Queensland with the family for Christmas last year, so, like, he's out right now. So, all in all, Mick Gatto seems to be a very interesting, dynamic man who fits well into any newspaper. As long as they report really, really nice things about him, it doesn't seem like he has any problem being in the spotlight or on the front page of that newspaper. His wife says that he's more recognizable than the prime minister, and he's hounded for photographs and selfies whenever they go out for dinner. Let me know what you think about Mick Gatto. Did you know who he was before this episode? Do you think he's just like a really good businessman that has had his reputation skewered by the media? Or do you think he's lived up to what the papers have written about him and probably done worse, but media outlets are a little scared to report on it given his habit of suing anybody who does? Let me know in the comments. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I continue to delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!